0: Welcome to this very special season of Delving Into Dance. This season, Ancestors and Anecdotes is a partnership with Ausdance Victoria, exploring the perspectives of some of Australia's female dance pioneers. This season forms the auditory component of the exhibition titled Ancestors and Anecdotes, opening concurrently with the 2017 Australian Dance Awards. This exhibition pays homage to the invaluable work of Australia's dance pioneers and the manner in which their legacy endures today. The focus is on five legendary dance pioneers, Cheryl Stock, Margaret Lassica through the perspective of her daughter Shelley, Elizabeth Cameron Dullman, Carol Johnson and Shirley McKechnie. This episode explores anecdotes of Margaret Lassica by the perspective of her daughter Shelley. Margaret's legacy is incredible and one in which Shelley is rightly proud of. Interviewed by Jonathan Homsley, this interview embarks on a linear journey of stories, mementos of Margaret's extraordinary legacy. The interview starts with Shelley discussing the importance of dance history and why we need to understand where we come from.
1: The best ways to kind of share in a linear fashion, as well.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's good, and I also think you know it's been a, it has been a continuing interest of mine and also was my you mother's know, um, to kind of keep talking about the historical perspective of things. I think it's I think it's super important, and I think um, you know there's there's never a definitive history, but I think it's really for, for practicing artists to be aware of the context um,
1: that they're working in, and, and one, and that is also the historical context. I think it's super important. And speaking of historical context, um, I know it wouldn't be an exact, concrete memory, but uh, do you remember how young you started dancing, and was your mom's dance class the first dance class you took?
2: Um, um I remember. I think the first kind of organised dance... Oh, I was probably a bit younger. But she, taught, she started teaching at my school. I remember doing that from about grade, um, grade three, I think. But I probably did dance... Oh, I definitely did dance classes before that, probably with her. And then also, um, when I was little, she used to teach um, some schools up at East Sydney Tech. Which is now um, one of the art schools, National Hmm. Arts School, and um, uh, so I used to do um, workshops with Ronnie Arnold, and uh, and then you know, and uh, uh, theatre arts and art ones. But she was kind of my main teacher, I guess, when I was little. Oh, I used to go to another woman called Christine Nearing, who used to teach too, and she taught a class that was painting.
1: Painting team. and moving, how yeah. amazing. So
2: we did it together.
1: And, and you do it inside days. school hours because you said it was in school or you did it outside of school hours?
2: Oh, Outside yeah. of school hours. At that stage, those sort of things were um, after school activities. Mm. You know, they weren't, it wasn't really part of um, curriculum. I'll just divert it because you, didn't, you said I didn't have to be chronological.
1: No, not so, at all, please. So when I
2: was in high school, I was dancing quite a lot teaching classes for teenagers then and so I would go to them on Saturday mornings and I was, you know, starting to get a bit more interested in things and I started to perform a bit with her company and um, uh, I think the first time I performed with them, I was 16 um, in fact I've just recently seen some photos of that in particular you know, it was pretty funny um, and uh, for my in terms of what I was doing for my um, sort of final years of school and what I was hoping to do once I left school, um, I couldn't quite work that out because I couldn't quite find what I wanted to do. But also, I couldn't do dance in school. Um, at that stage, it wasn't a, a, a secondary school subject. But I had a really, really wonderful art teacher. And so I proposed to her that as part of my... Portfolio, but I also did a performance, and um, between us, we organised a way for that to happen, um, which meant getting a whole kind of uh, adjudication kind of panel um, together, which comprised of people who were, you know, a couple of people from the VCA and um, uh, some other other kind of yeah, professionals mm-hmm. profession, and anyway. So. Uh, which was in the school, I did it in the school gym, and um, which I really liked because, I, like, for the same reason that I did. 2015. Yeah. nice, a nice kind of circle. Get yep. to there. So. Yeah. Get to that. Um, and so yeah, that's the way. Okay. And then I, then it was like, okay, so what am I going to do when I leave school? And I couldn't. There wasn't really a good fit anyway. So I was like architecture or I'm going to go to art school or I'm going to go... I could, I, the dance, I couldn't... They wouldn't accept me at VCA because I didn't have ballet. But my mother was a modern dancer. So my training was all in modern dance and creative... Well, especially when I was younger, creative movement. And, um, and I guess I started making work when I was about 16 too. and And... Um, uh, so yeah, I ended up at University doing an I
1: did get into RMIT painting and printmaking, and then thought. I don't know what which is, I think, such a, sh- a very ironic moment because, um, for all of us, you're such a part of the Australian dance landscape as a contemporary maker. But you would need more ballet training to go into VCA in that time, in that kind of political lineage of VCA, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Of course. But I'm
2: actually really glad I went to a university. At a particular time, it was it felt like um, a disadvantage that I had not gone to um, a tertiary dance school
1: mm-hmm.
2: and had that sort of training. But I worked with different people continuously. It was a time when there were... A lot of people were being brought to Australia to teach for extended periods. Um, Russell de Mark brought, brought lots of people really interesting people that I wanted to work with um, and I was, I was included in some of those workshops and, um, uh, and my mother also brought some really amazing people to um, one of them was a woman called Dana Wright and um, that was really super influential for me because she was basically her, her, her only practice was a solo practitioner and um, so it kind of gave me the idea that that was a possible trajectory as a, as a maker, and I thought, well, that, that you could do that anyway. And because she stayed with us, I got to kind of like her or, or listen to her or, you know, quiz her about, you know, or whatever. So that was really interesting. And at that stage, that really wasn't something that people were doing here.
1: It was all about en masse, the ensemble.
2: Yeah, it was very much about companies. So my trajectory... So, you know, so I went to Melbourne Uni and then one of my close friends at the time then switched to art school. Um, And And you were still in modern uh, dance
1: ensemble at the time simultaneously.
2: uh, Yeah, and then I kind of separated myself from that, you know, in the typical (laughs) mother-child type of thing, uh, compounded by a professional relationship as well. Um, So, uh, yeah, and I, I started making... I I made, made work for that as part of Bob Dance Ensemble Seasons and performed in other people's work and all that sort of stuff and then I was like hey, no, I don't actually I'm not satisfied with the uh, the choreographic mechanisms that I was using and thinking about and I felt like I needed to inquire more. Or Fully into what my practice might be. So I decided that I would spend a lot of time in the studio, and I'm very lucky to have access to a studio because my mum had a studio uh, at that stage in um, Orr Street in Carlton.
1: Was this when Extension was opened when you were in university? Uh,
2: No, Extension's opened kind of earlier than that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and, uh, and it was earlier than I'm trying to remember. No, definitely, because I was doing teenage classes there. So I reckon it opened when I was probably about 14 or 15. Oh, okay. Which would mean that it opened in...
1: I believe that my research was somewhere between 80 and
2: 83. That, that oh, is that it was, it was I was definitely earlier than that. Yeah, definitely earlier than that. It was mid 70s. Because my first journey in the was 79, so it would have been like, more like 76, 75.
1: Do you feel as a maker, because obviously you were making so young, and uh, where a lot of your making tools, the foundations are kind of from your mother's teachings?
2: Yes, and other people's teachings, and also because of things that I'd seen. Because one of the other things was she took myself and my sister when she when, when he was still um, uh, around before she went overseas and stuff um, to a huge amount of work and uh, both local and international and I and I, and for especially when I was younger the, one of the main rehearsal menus was our playground in our house so <laughs> I also could
1: in what summer was that I could
2: write it. Um, so I could listen and watch rehearsals. I used to drive in there because I went out for hours and I would to play in there. And it, was like, and it was, you know, consuming my mother's attention. It was like... But it was also very, uh, very instructive too. And we had a lot of people hanging around the house and so the would be ongoing discussions. So it was like, it was incredibly um, uh, interesting and, um, you know, I was incredible incredibly lucky to, be, to have... Is there a
1: particular um, rehearsal or moment when you were young, <laughs> oh, over sorry. here in the clear, and is there a certain, maybe it may be told just a word or no, a no, phrase that it keeps so the mind going... my
2: brain doesn't work like that, yeah. right? So it So, it, 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 it was the whole, it was the whole experience of uh, listening to all that, you know, being interested in it, questioning things, um, um, but it being there is something to think about, and, but yeah, that was present, and also you're going to see other people's work, but also just eavesdropping—not eavesdropping, but listening to lots and lots and lots of conversation, sure. and discussion about things too. Not only the doing of it, but the you know hours and hours of sitting around drinking coffee and. Not me. Yeah, because your
1: mother, correct me if I'm wrong, but she was really interested in the psychology of things as well. And oh, absolutely. Psychology of the practice, was that really effective? Because that's really what they were talking about. Yeah. But yes, they would rehearse all day, but then they're yeah. having a cup of tea, and that's when the yeah. brain really starts cooking. Well, it was the psychology and also the philosophy of stuff. And
2: she was a very, um, she was a person who was super interested in ideas and continued to... Um, be open to different ways of thinking about things and different ideas. Such so she's an incredibly wide reader in um, in uh, uh, yeah, philosophy, psychology. Um, she did most of her fellow class training too. She was super curious about that way of just the sort of the, the, the possibilities of, mm-hmm. uh, of neurological pathways she never practiced officially as a as a full class practitioner. She, she's probably the most anti-institutional
0: person <laughs> I know.
2: <laughs> and um, and uh, so she would resist uh, being Involved in sort of definitive, remember, definitive um, positions and mm. things. She was much more. Um, she wanted a situation to be malleable, so absolutely. So there was a couple ways of possibility of finding out new things or or different ways of thinking about stuff. And she was, um, yeah, she was she was always intensely curious and open.
1: To do you find that intense curiosity? Like, so say, let's track, so you're a young adult. Yeah. You're running late, you rush to the class, you're like, oh, I have to do my mom's class. Yeah. What was the typical class for your mom? My mom, <laughs> at that stage,
2: taught a... It would it would change, and that was the other yeah. interesting thing. So she would get interested in stuff and things, and she would incorporate things, and that was really good. So it wasn't like she was really anti-having a fixed definitive technique that could be codified, taught, like, just a little side issue. I remember uh, one of the times we were away, she and one of her colleagues went to New York and sat in of some great classes when Martha Graham was still teaching, mm. and she was just excited and kind of gobsmacked at the difference between how she taught and the way the, you know, at that stage, um, mm. in the institutions, or no, there weren't really so many institutions, but in the, the way of teaching Brian, sort of second or third generation, yeah. it had become very dogmatic mm. and really quite far away.
1: From the game the, of telephone gets farther exactly. and
2: farther away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and I think that sort of reinforced her ideas about this kind of, you know, the dogmatic reproduction of of a, of a so-called fixed technique. It's yeah. something getting
1: codified, and especially yeah. in the sure we're in a world of syllabi. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: As, a, as an American, seeing all the syllabus, particularly for modern dance, I find it quite odd. Yeah.
2: I didn't know. I was like, yeah.
1: maybe it was America the only country yeah. that? Became, you know, yeah.
2: but you know, it, part of that's an unrolling through the American mm. system, and then came here and all the institutional, the the, uh, the tertiary uh, dance courses mm. is very, very kind of dogmatic. It's a way of I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's much more um, uh, open now. now but, but in um, the
1: I 70s said, was a very different time, it was just four or Yeah.
2: So, her, her class, I guess, if you were going to, if you were just kind of this broad yeah. uh, brush stroke, it was very, it was influenced by, I guess, Humphrey Lamone technique much more, and nobody else much taught that mm. here. Um, and um, so there was uh, the, the, the whole thing about, you know, um, uh, drop and, and recovery and these, you know, very, very beautiful circular and spiralling patterns, um, which is very little mine, which, um, and there was a certain, um, which, you know, I had problems with as a, a young person. A, 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 but I also enjoy too, immensely, um, a, a certain... Um,
1: uh, movement a, texture? Yeah, or? it
2: was a movement texture, and it was also the relationship between um, movement and meaning, um, and, and the whole kind of expression thing, but even quite young, I was, like, starting to bristle again. You know, it's just a different way of thinking. It's a generational thing, and it wasn't that she was lifestyle and things because some of the work she made was was really, really um, uh, quite formal too but her in class she was very interested, you know, it it had that you know, so there was a lot of pleasure in movement Mm. Um, she was also very interested in technique and um, giving people a really clear idea and experience of their bodies she was the other thing about her classes were, and this is like an, um, sort of another aspect mm. of the institutional, non-institution. She taught at Melbourne University for a long time, um, and a lot of the people who were in the company were in the seventies, especially sixties and seventies. Where people come at, came out of all different schools at Melbourne Uni, yes. um, and but who were really interested in dance because there was no vocational dance training there. Mm. So. When the vocational dance training started, you know there was this big kind of thing about professional and amateur. Mm-hmm. And that sort of had never been a kind of a thing because what people would take often take a years of their um, of their uh, degrees or postpone going into the workforce to just dance for a, a while, you know, for a couple of years, and it was economic. Which is so normal now. Yeah, yeah, but people. Most people who are who dance have completed a vocational dance mm. training. You know, that's you know, that been through so
0: uh, I am still like a
2: complete anomaly in my generation, definitely, but still in the in the more recent ones of not having gone through any of the dance institutions. So mm. I, my but still having a, a, a,
1: a dance, In association with them all.
2: Yeah, but also at, Dance training, but it's been outside of the institutional world, um, which interestingly is uh, not so unusual in other places, but it's still unusual
1: here. Mm. And speaking of unusual, there, I got to see through one of your mother's biographies. She did a lot of site specific work, which is also what you are known for. Yeah. Did you remember performing any of those site specific yes, works and the antics you needed yes. to do?
2: So, I, yes, I did perform in some of those outdoor pieces. Um, some stuff at Adelaide Festival, I remember that one, which was really fun. Um, I remember one horrendous one at the um, Langone Street Festival, which actually... After doing that and um, being hassled by um, some uh, patrons of the event, uh, I decided I did not want to perform in front of people who did not choose to attend the, the performance again. Mm. I've changed my mind about that because I think there's, a, there's really interesting ways of interacting with people and um, audiences and doesn't insist on their
1: um, consent, consent to view.
2: Yeah, their consent to view, or even their interest to view. And, I, and this is more to do with the project that I've been working on for the last year, or so called the Design Plot. Uh, and it's actually it's really interesting. Um, so you know, I have shifted my view on that. But for a while, it's like, eh, I can't do that anymore. Um, and uh, and then also, you know, the one, the thing that I mentioned before, which I recently saw some files of, um, when I was 16, that was in a gallery. Um, and that was, uh, that was... Actually, it was not only one mother's, It was a couple of other people to with some musicians. And um, it was in a gallery in Sydney. Um, and also because of mm, mm, a lot of the other work that I had seen... Um, I felt that I had my my to me it was not such a um, an illogical or outlandish thing to to see um, work in a whole lot of different mm-hmm. sort of spaces um, and different situations and different contexts. So when I started making work in galleries, it really wasn't because I thought it was something new or different. Mm-hmm. It was because it was onto a very particular lineage of of performance work and choreography that that existed in relation to the art world and in relation to galleries and museums in different ways. It was never because it was something different. Mm -hmm. Um, It was was always with a sense of that historical context. Because the other thing was that we had a huge library of stuff. So, and my mum had great dad's books and subscribed to a whole of really fantastic journals. So, there was... It was you always for pre- the intellectual curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. This was pre-internet. So, you know, there was all this stuff to look at. And it's like, oh, you know. So, yeah, I, was, I, was, I guess I was always... Unlike, I have to say... Um, I was a very... <laughs> I was very aware of the historical context and the possibilities of things mm-hmm. due to you know, my education. And my major, you know, when I was at uni, not Melbourne Uni, my major thing was, my major uh, uh, area of study was fine art, so, which is, you know, art history. Then, mm. and, you, know, the, you know, Melbourne Parkway campuses, it wasn't practising in fine arts.
1: I find very interesting that like your kind of like the legacy of mom's curiosity kind of leads throughout your practice yeah. and it's all over your mother's work as well. yeah. Um, is there a particular, cause obviously you would have grown up with dancers beside you yeah, yeah. making work with you. Yeah. Are there particular memories of other people from modern dance ensemble that you hold dear?
2: Oh God. Yeah. You know, there are people who my mother worked with, um, uh, other dancers who she, she made work very specifically with um, and also, you know, all the um, the other things that are around making a performance so that, you know, sound people are writing and they'll you know, always, most of the meeting would be at our house, so there was uh, all of that stuff and the whole kind of, you know it's kind of funny, but the magic of theatre, you know, was very, very um, real to me because I used to go and sit on the, on, the, on the dress runs and the text and stuff like that, and then be there. But, you know, I used to help with the box office and do all of that sort of stuff. So that whole kind of mechanism of theatre um, was very present. But yeah, there were a lot of other people, and you know, and I'm still in contact with at least some of them.
1: Because unfortunately, when some of the buyers are quite um, not as expensive as I was hoping to be in my research, but yeah. they would mention you and they would mention Lloyd. And I wanted to. Just some, there are so many. Could you name some of them
2: for us? Yeah, so. well, okay, we've got a few people I've seen recently. Yeah. Recently. You know, the, the, people who are, the reason why is because they're the most. We, at the moment, because we've continued in dance more obviously than other people. Oh, um, Mary Major was uh, one of the most kind of leading um, dancers, and um, you know they they used to discuss a lot of stuff and um, and work together in a really kind of um, extraordinary way. And Trugear was another. Uh, that so uh, she worked on lots of other things as well. She she actually she went to um, one extra um, after she, she moved to Sydney for a while. Then was in London for a while too. Um, uh, Rosemary Simons who became sort of moved sideways and uh, she was always interested interest in visual arts sort of as an exhibition designer. Um, Dan Taggart, who I think uh, danced with one mother for a really long time in a whole lot of different contexts. And um, uh, I mean, his, his, his vocational area was teaching. And um, and at a certain point, I think he just decided he, he would stop dancing. But he danced for ages with one mother. Who else? Oh, Victoria Mackenzie and Gartner.
1: And um, uh, did a lot of people stay in Melbourne work. to continue to make work? Most of them no, went
2: overseas. People, um, um, people didn't necessarily continue
1: making work because it, it was very hard to become a uh, to be. Well, still, it's hard. Um, How to be a dancer full time? <laughs> exactly.
2: So people, you know, moved into other things. But the amount of people who come up to either my sister or me and say. I did your mother's class when I was studying at Northern University and it totally changed the way I thought about blah, 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 whatever the other thing that they were doing was as well. But I think my mother was also super interested, as well as being interested in people who were who wanted to really invest a huge amount of effort and attention and their life into dance. She was also really interested in how dance um, Functioned in relation to many, many other things, and so she was very interested in teaching non-vocational dancers. So at extensions, there were lots of classes that really were not for dancers; they were for people who really just wanted to dance.
1: And do you feel like in those classes were more technical, or should make it more improvised based? Because
2: yeah, they were about giving people a sense of their bodies and um, in different ways, and I think her. Her interest in dance was also one about the, the, the benefits and possibilities in people having access to that sort of understanding of themselves being useful for them, their ability to be in the world.
1: Of course. Um, and I (laughs) (laughs) think, and so I always was really fascinated because I, myself as a, as a Shelley fan, we all know about your beautiful complex scores and (laughs) (laughs) modest. Um, and so did you feel when you are score making kind of like the legacies of your mother's kind of intellectual prowess kind of
2: has come in? I would resist using the word, word score. Yeah. Um. I would just say, a long discussion actually for people yeah. about the school well. So it's not apropos of the exhibition that's on at, um, at the, um, um, the Empire, Empire.
1: Yes. Yeah. um In this context, I wouldn't use
2: it. Uh, one of the very first pieces I made really did use a score, and it was totally influenced by my, um, the Cunningham um, performance that I had been taken to see at the Adelaide Festival. I think it was so many cities. Yeah, you probably can find that up. <laughs> so I was uh, 15, and um, it was just one of those light bulb moments. Um, it was amazing. So um, I suddenly saw the possibilities of making and thinking about dance um, unlinked to... Narrative and unlinked to music and unlinked to um, a, a particular view of the body um, or the idea of sort of this expressive um, thing. Uh, and so I started doing a bit of research about Cunningham and, you know, the whole thing, you know, chants and aleatory procedures and... Um, and I made this solo using this series of drawings as a score, um, and ah, uh, that I'd make. And but in terms of how I then continued making work, um, I, oh, I, didn't, I didn't, sorry, I got hooked on the the, the score part of that question. What did you? Ask
1: no, me? it's okay. Well, I, I'm saying that like. Since you were young, your mother offered a platform for intellectual discourse, yeah, by yes, psychology. Yes. So yeah. now that's kind of seeping into your body. It's
2: subconscious
1: yeah. now. Yes, and yeah. how do you feel all of that teachings from your mother is with your score making? So it wasn't score making, but choreographic provocations, yes. we'll
0: say. Look,
2: yes, and also in the, the, the child parent uh, or mentor uh, ingenue uh, new thing. Up. It's also, you know, the point of resistance. Mm. So, but it gave me something to, uh, resist, to and rebel, resist and which rebel, and kind of go. I don't really want to make work like that. I want to make work
1: like this. And do you feel the Merce Cage kind of tangent was the resistance?
2: Um, it, it started me thinking in a particular way. that having access to Dana, and then a whole lot of people who came here to teach. It was in sort of the height of the. Um, uh, the fascination and interest with different body work systems um so you know stuff to do with developmental um uh, uh,
1: patterning and pattern. body makes yeah, yeah, and...
2: all of that sort of stuff so you know there are a lot of people coming and teaching us so you know it was really interesting time you know release technique um you know like, and you know people like Eva Karsak was coming back quite a lot, so she taught, I mean, um, obviously, um, Russell brought her, but also my mum brought her to to teach at her studio too, and I remember actually going to, I don't know how old I was, going to a workshop in London with Eva, freezing, it was in this drill ball on Euston Road and I was I must have only been about 14 or 15 and um so it was, yeah anyway, I had a very clear memory of it and kind of been slightly perplexed but also fascinated by um and that was the first time I'd done a class with reason, but um, it was so different from a different way of experiencing one's body um uh Yeah, so I can. sorry, I'm babbling. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So, yeah, I think there were the possibilities for me to start thinking different ways about how I might want to make work. i sorry, I can't remember quite how I first found out about Trisha Brown. But maybe
0: through, I'm almost, I'm almost,
2: I'm almost, I'm almost, I'm almost coming out, I don't know, I'm, before that. I got very interested in her work um, and then I managed to the first time I went to New York um, Sally Gardner had suggested I go and uh, got a class at Trish Brunswick, which I did. I didn't do class with her then, I did class with um, and um, and a few other people I ran, was in the company then I think too and Hopman and then um uh, I, know, I We I probably did her class but Romani did stay with the class and um which I just loved and um but I also I guess even before that yeah so there was there was, a, there was a, you know I I was less interested in the lyrical mm-hmm. stream, and I was more interested in, at that stage, in sort of, sort of post-modern, what now you know, post... So objective. Subjective the vocabulary, yeah. we can yeah. get to... Here. Yeah, anyway, so so, yeah, and I, also because I think the connections I'm jumping now to when I was, that's I was about 21 then, I'd already become uh... Well, I, thought, well, I guess through a couple of friends of mine who were visual artists I've been more, become more interested in the, that sort of paradigm of working too which was really different from my friends who, were, who had come out of college and then were joining companies
1: Because um, they wouldn't have time to sit and investigate their own practice they would go straight into some, from someone else's, yeah. Practice, yeah, someone yeah, else's yeah.
2: practice and someone else's practice And you know it's just a different thing so you learn obviously in the rehearsal, you know. I, it was just a different different thing. So I, I um I I was I started spending, you know, a lot of time just working by myself and sort of developing the idea of having a practice, an ongoing practice that didn't necessarily rely on the next performance I was gonna do or anything like that, which was incredibly different way of working than nearly most other people, I, even my dad's friends, worked, but it was, it was the way all my artist friends worked. You just got well,
1: to the studio, you work. Did you feel that with postmodernism that your mother's practice kind of went on a tangent as well as when you had postmodern influence? It, that my po- as, po- as postmodernism, excuse me, postmodernism <laughs> influenced your practice. Yeah. Did you feel that influenced your mother's as well? To well, the Or so she kind of stuck to her guns. She
2: look her, her work altered in different ways, and she was certainly interested in ideas, um, in the ideas that informed that work, and certainly interested in different people's work. But in terms of her own practice, look, well, it, it did actually when I think about it but not in a, not in a super direct way. Mm. I mean, when I say, you know, it changed and developed through the years, but it didn't do the kind of flip. Then like, because yeah. people were doing quite a lyricism and
1: then postmodernism yeah, came yeah. and everyone just yes. flipped it super and reversed direct, it.
2: Yeah. So
1: it wasn't like that. Um, Over generation, I would say, let's say 30 years and under for yes. the sake of the podcast. Yeah. Um, are really informed by people like Joe and Deanne. Yeah. Joe Lloyd and Deanne Butterworth, and which their kind of kids that they work and their personal work and professional work are so influenced by your making and yeah. your collaborations with them. Can you just, and then obviously you've learned stuff from your mom and I'm curious, do you ever see notes of Joe and Deanne and see, not bits of your mom but things from your mom and go, or provocations from the past and kind of the generations it's looking together? thought about because obviously it is a game of telephone, as we yeah, said yeah, before, yeah. but I'm, I'm interested like, in how it affects the dancers so now. I, I
2: don't even know, like, and I'm probably not the person to ask, how my work, you know, the relationships between my mm. mother's work and my work, I don't think I'm the person to ask about that.
1: Because um, it wouldn't know. be as objective for you as well. To out.
2: I don't, it would be curious mm. to have somebody else's beyond that. Um... And in terms of Joe and Diane's work in relation to me, well, clearly I've worked with them the most for the longest. So time. I've been working with both of them for nearly 20 years. Um, in fact, it's longer. D21, because the first thing that she worked on was a piece called Character X, and that was in Next Wave in 1996. Can you tell us about that work? Uh it was at Fitzroy Town Hall. Um, it was... There were five of us in it. Oh, that means Kylie, too. Kylie Walters, um, who's another Australian dancer who doesn't live here anymore. She's in, um, in Lyon. Um, She's worked a lot. In fact, I
0: just had coffee with her. been <laughs> here uh, for a couple of months. But she was in that
2: piece, too. So she... But then she went overseas, she's been overseas for about 20 years, but she comes back and has worked with me on different projects as well. So she was in Solis for other people as well. Uh, but she's worked with, like, loads and loads of other European companies. Um, and... And so her own one. If I think... Oh, so character X. So it was at Fitzroy Town Hall. I worked with a composer called Paul Schultz, who's now a resident in London, or he already was living there then, I think, he just. And I got him to remix every night from his catalogue of art music. Um, and I, because for a long time I resisted using music because I didn't want the work to be solely associated with music. I worked with um, an artist called Cathy Temmer. Um, she made a, uh, a, an outfit that we could all get into but also existed as a thing in itself. She uses a lot of fake fur. There's, a, there's some beautiful photos of... That, uh, Kylie, so Carly Walters, Deanna, um, uh, Sandra Parker, Carly Mellor, and myself. Well, that is know. an
1: all-star group.
2: So, uh, uh, just for your entertainment.
1: we're going to have a look at it, right? i going show yeah, cool.
2: something. Uh, so the ABC did this kind of competition, in, 90, in the eighties. No, it must have been nineties. Um, it must have been ninety maybe it was the year after ninety I can't remember who won it in the end. But you have to put in these video submissions. So this is a version of character it's sort of excerpt from it taken um was so a section how I work. I made this big piece and then in the end there's one section that I just couldn't stop thinking about and about how I made it. And then that section became a kind of ill for one of the whole series of work, which I called the Situation Series. Um, so Carly for some reason wasn't at this moment. She couldn't see that. So
1: this is Kathy's an Do you? And speaking of art pieces, like because you were one of the—I don't want to say one of the first—but I think in what my our young generation kind of personifies as artists who work in the white space. Do you feel this was the start of making work? Of no. oh, that kind of white space, I can see. That. I'm just seeing it from the no, white room. No, yeah. This is
2: just because it was, a, this was. It needed to be like this for um, uh, for filming um, purposes. Um, no, we. Um, as I said, I, I started making. I, I was in this, the a piece of my mum's when I was sixteen, which was in the gallery. I. It did. not it wasn't like this big um
1: deal that we kind do nowadays where it's black space, white space. Yeah,
2: it was like this was a logical place for my work to sit and it was a logical context for it to sit. So then um, I started I made a few pieces for uh, in a gallery that doesn't exist anymore for reconnaissance. Hang on to look at this. So, um, and then, I can't remember what year. Uh, Maybe I made one performance there, and then Ashworth started representing me. So Ashworth Gallery represented me for about 20 years, which was really important in terms of contextualising my work at that time. So, So it was about offering people the opportunity to be able to see work in a different way unlinked to many of the theatrical um, company ensemble tropes. no 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 but this is a context mm. thing so you know music is sort of a particular way of view of looking at things through an arch that was always frontal you know I just wasn't I wanted I wanted people to, to not think about and or have more opportunity to decide and think about
1: the way they're looking and stuff. So that was really important for me. And speaking of, I'm just looking at this one, even though it was made in the 90s. Yeah.
2: um,
1: There's the thing we always discuss, which is, you know, contested, and we can be a bit kind of facetious with this, about the Melbourne look and the, the minimalism of the way we approach I don't want to say the... I guess the aesthetics. We don't approach the body the minimalist way. The outcome may look minimalist mm-hmm. from a surface level, but I'm curious how you perceive also even your mom's teachings and your work into the Melvin look. Because what I... No, and I, and I, mean, I mean it quite seriously, because it, it is it is kind of there are people in these interviews from different states sure, sure. and they discuss, you know, in Queensland we had a certain thing in Dance North with Cheryl and yeah. there's particular, that was happening with Bangor, everyone had very certain aesthetics going on and but it is evident, even work nowadays, people would aim for the aesthetic that you created from that particular work, Character X, that we just looked at and it's always very hard to pin down but I think
2: I, I... I think one of the things about Melbourne that is particular is the amount of activity. And it's diverse. I don't think there is a unified look. I will resist
1: that. Yeah, I will resist that. It's a funny one. Um,
2: I think that it's it's interesting that um, there's always a desire to, to... it's like, you know, the desire for patterning, you know, to see that it looks a particular way. I... There, There is, you know, it's like the, the old thing about Melbourne not, not being, Melbourne uh, being, uh, you know, more intellectual and in Sydney, being more kind of showy. <laughs> There's aspects to that that are true, but it's not only that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are institutions down here. There's, so there are reasons why there's a density. Um, at different times, it has not been a very collegiate um, environment. And then other times where it's extremely collegiate. Um, and that's a whole other discussion. But I think there's very particular reasons why. I think it's really interesting. Um, it's sort of from a more sociological Viewpoint. I think in terms of an aesthetic, I don't know. I, I want to actually just go back to, because I didn't finish talking about, you know, if I look at Diana and Joe's work, I can clearly see traces of myself, but mm. then there are traces of them in my work. And the, 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 the piece that we worked on for West Face, How Choreography Works, was about really trying. Um, unpack what that relationship is that reciprocal relationship is and um, so that comprised of um, three screens that they had um, made selections from my archival stuff so there was stuff, uh, it wasn't the selections I would have made um, so it was really fascinating there was stuff in rehearsals and there was stuff, solo stuff with me stuff that they were in, stuff that other people were, was, you, know, you know, over a long period of time. And, um, they ran those the three loops that weren't quite the same uh, duration, so it, there were always these, these slippages mm. of what actually you saw at the same time. And then um, I designed this object that was in the room too that could be moved around, and then We had these live sessions twice a week too, where I just went in and did something for an hour with instruction from them. So it was improvised. Um, We had been working on the material, but we I did a big interview too. So it was very much about how how this information circles around between people. and the sort of lines of influence, and um, yeah, it's, it's not just one way, mm. that's for sure, and when I look at their work too, I, you know, it's really interesting to see how that, and then people who go to their classes, because they both teach a lot too, and they both work with other people to see how, you know, so it kind of keeps on going, I and then mean, it sort of cross-verbalised with all these other things, and it Back at me in different ways, and it's sort of like this—you know—I think those those ways of ideas and influences being disseminated. I mean, if I look at it in a kind of really, because you know, I've actually never thought about it that way. I, I could say yes, I can definitely see, you know, because of the way my thinking was um, was. Uh, Developed through my mother's influence, I can definitely see how you know the possibilities, which is different from the way some other people were. Mm I'm not very systematic. I'm not very systematic, uh, and I'm
1: constantly questioning.
2: Yeah, absolutely, because I, you know, it's fucking boring and not, and I don't want to know everything. That's the other thing that I think is mm. really, really important and has been super important to all my work Um Is uh, I don't
0: want really to know everything.
2: If I knew everything, I
1: keep is Because I'm practicing. A war. Yeah, what are you exactly? practicing? What are you
2: practicing, exactly. So, yeah. So I think well, all of those things have definitely, they definitely my and they definitely have filtered out that way.
1: Do you just feel colleagues
2: oh. you know, do work differently because they're differences? Yeah, the context
1: and the do society. you feel you were talking about that reciprocal relationship? Mm-hmm. Did you feel how did you feel you influenced your mother in her making? Uh, there must have been moments she propagated the score, and you intentionally just might. Bunker the wrong way, and she would look and you'd be like, I love you, but you're driving me crazy. Oh, I'm sure,
2: <laughs> I'm sure some of the people I mentioned before could, could tell more stories about that, uh, about what a pesto was. But the, uh, probably the pestiness um, she, quite, she quite enjoyed to, as a provocation. So, yeah, probably mm-hmm.
1: And I think that something for me, because I'm obviously, as everyone listeners can hear, I'm not from this country and I'm just getting to reconnect tidbits and what I get to hear when heard as a student. And I just see all these female leaders and then, I mean, it's subjective, but I do see one male roles, but then I saw these female pioneers did your mom – do you think your mom saw herself as a feminist or a female pioneer at the time, or she was just doing what she wanted to do? She was
2: doing what she wanted to do, but she was also – I mean, I remember clearly being on, I mean, on holiday as a, a kid when uh, the female unit came out. I remember sitting in this motel room, and my mother's like nose, and, as it often was, and the, the original cover of the female eunuch um, by Jermaine Greer was this fantastic image of um, the sort of female torsos of um, and but as a sort of stretched out sculptural kind of thing. So it, it wasn't grotesque, but it was really um, communicative and very pervasive image, and wondering. What, what does a unit mean? What's the female eunuch? And, yeah, look, my mum didn't like labels, but, yeah, she, she, was, she, was,
1: she was a feminist. Because speaking to some of the other women we got to speak for this podcast, they didn't see themselves as a female leader and then see themselves like they wouldn't
2: necessarily
1: gender it. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's a very different time um, and gender politics function in a very different way. And my mother really hated labels. But in terms of politics of equality, I think that's how she would have located Mm. that. You know, having come to Australia as a refugee um, from Vienna, having lived through occupation in Vienna for a number of years as a teenager, as a child teenager, and various other experiences, I think that she has an extremely strong sense of the, the, the necessity and power of equality in, you know, in all its guises.
0: Thanks for listening to this very special episode. You can find out more about Margaret's legacy at delvingintodance.com where you'll find a list of episode notes and links. You can find Delving Into Dance on Facebook, you can subscribe on iTunes, and you can follow on Twitter. At Delving Into Dance, you'll find a range of other wonderful episodes, including with Meryl Tankard, Noel Tovey, Stephanie Lake, Deborah Jowett, Rafael Bonachella, Lucy Guerin, and Gideon Obazanik. Delving Into Dance is a self-funded project profiling the diversity of the dance industry. If you too wish to contribute to help future seasons, you can do so at the website. This special season was a partnership with AusDance Victoria, a critical body for advocating, profiling and promoting dance. You can become a member for as little as $33 a year. Head to ausdancevic.org.au. Until next time, take care.